The Pat Kenny Show on News Talk with Matter Private Network. During current restrictions, don't ignore your health concerns. Our expert team is ready to help. Good morning to Luke O'Neill, Professor of Biochemistry at Trinity College in Dublin. Morning, Luke. Good morning, Pat. Now, the Delta variant is very much the topic of uh, conversation, and it's now the dominant one in the UK. That's right. 90% of cases now in the UK are Delta. So it's taken over, really, Pat, as the main variant over there. And lots of data coming out. Obviously, we're all looking at this very, very closely because there's concerns about it. It's more transmissible for definite. They've agreed that now. At least 60% more transmissible. So it spreads much more readily, you know. And then, of course, the big question is, does it give rise to increased risk of disease and hospitalisation? There is an increased risk of hospitalisation with this one, if you catch it. But the, the news is not too bad, Pat, in that vaccinations are seen to protect. So the majority of those ending up in hospital uh, have not been vaccinated, you see. So that's a good sign. The big difference, Pat, is the one shot and two shot, interestingly. So as you probably heard as well, if you have a single shot, you're still at risk of it. Uh, The double shot gives you the best protection from it. So it's telling us you must get the second shot really to protect you against this, this particular variant. Um, The rise in cases, I mean, obviously they're detecting it better um, as well. They are. They have a more sensitive test for it. The the initial test was to sequence the whole genome of the virus, read the whole recipe for the entire virus. That's how they first saw it, of course, in the first place. They were sequencing the entire genome. And the UK are great at this, by the way. The UK lead the world, actually, in this area. It's called genomics. And they've seen it by sequencing the whole genome. But they can home in now on the precise parts of the genome that are different. And it's much quicker. It's called genotyping. And the turnaround time is much faster. It's a 48-hour turnaround time, whereas the whole genome approach was taking five to ten days. I think that's one reason why they're detecting so many cases, of course possibly testing is part of this, you know, but there's no doubt now there's a consensus this is the major one. And the numbers are striking, Pat, so so between February and June this year there were 33,000 cases. Nearly 20,000 were unvaccinated people, you see nearly 7,500 had one jab and only 1,700 were fully vaccinated. So we know now from that kind of study that if you're vaccinated, you should be protected from, from catching this virus. But again, the one jab is the concern because that's, that's not giving sufficient protection, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, in terms of uh, the hospitalisation, because that's what people are worried about. I mean, um, one of the things, the reason we weren't so concerned about younger people and kids particularly, we said, well, it doesn't affect them too badly. They get it and, they, you know, they may be asymptomatic. Um, what about uh, deaths even from yeah. the Indian variant? Well, again, the, the big question will be, can you break the chain from case numbers to hospitalisation to severe disease and death? That's what vaccines should do. They should stop that disease developing into severe disease. And again, this big study shows 383 people in hospital, 251 were unvaccinated, 86 had one dose and 42 had two doses. So again, that just shows it is breaking that chain because otherwise mm. there'd be a lot more people in there who'd been vaccinated. And in the deaths, again, two thirds were, were unvaccinated and then some had one vaccine dose, some had two. And they could be dying for some other reason, you know, so you've got to be careful with these sort of numbers. But but certainly the consensus is that the, the, the vaccine is breaking that chain from case numbers into hospitalisation and, and yeah. then into more severe disease. Yeah, they're, they're talking about maybe asking people to quarantine for longer when they come from the, the mainland of Britain uh, to, to Ireland. But if they're coming on holidays... Where are they supposed yeah. to quarantine? Well, exactly. Because they're told, quarantine yeah. at home. Uh, so that's the debate about whether or not they should be in hotels, special quarantine hotels, or whether they can be trusted to it, set it, themselves up somewhere and stay 
in isolation it's, for five, six, seven, ten days. Exactly. It's, it, this is the biggest race at the moment, isn't it? The race is to get everybody to get two shots. That's what the race is now because this new variant has emerged. We didn't have that race as intensely as before because we knew before, for instance, one shot was quite good against previous variants, you see. But now that we know the one shot isn't quite as good, we've got to get the two shots into people's arms. Mm. So, so the idea would be to try to slow it down now until we get everybody having two shots. And of yeah. course, the UK are going to probably push out this um, 21st of June deadline because of the, for the same reason. In other words, if to delay that a little bit, they'll get as many people as possible with the two shots to protect them from this particular, and the same would be the case yeah. in Ireland, I imagine. I had Paul Reid on on Friday, the head of the, the HSE, and I asked him a very simple question, and it's about those who were given AstraZeneca, whether they were the medically vulnerable and they could be quite young, the under 30s, for example, they're given AstraZeneca and the over 60s were given AstraZeneca and they're told, you know, you've got to wait 16 weeks, then it was 12 weeks, now they're hoping to bring it down to eight weeks. But you've got the extraordinary situation where people who are very vulnerable can't get their second shot for much longer than those who aren't vulnerable at all, who who get two shots within a month. Yeah, I mean, it, it is extraordinary it why is they extraordinary. won't go for, uh, you know, giving a second shot of of Pfizer to those AstraZeneca people and, and uh, help them with their vulnerability. But he didn't have a reason. I said to him, you know, you've got someone who is under 30 who gets the first shot and you're telling them, even though two days after they got their first shot, they said you can't get AstraZeneca if you're under 30 and you want them to wait around and get a second shot of the same one that you won't give a first shot to an under 30 year old. It's strange. And he didn't have an answer. Yeah, very strange. I mean, it's ridiculous. Now, it's perverse now, Pat, that we have people who are vulnerable who aren't fully vaccinated and there's people who are less vulnerable who are. That's a real disconnect, I think. The second that one would worry me would be the four-week thing. You know, they've said if you've AstraZeneca, your first shot four weeks later, you can begin to benefit from the vaccine bonus. Now that Delta's here, that's changed because that single shot still puts you at risk of catching the Delta form, you see. So, so again, they, they should change these guidelines in the face of Delta. Really, the whole thing has changed, really, in many ways, because of Delta. So we're all hoping NIAC might might give an opinion on this. You see, because it's it's, it's a serious issue now, right now. Yeah, NIAC seem to be particularly sluggish on, on this one. Now, more UK data from Britain, particularly, people are not keeping their social distance as much as they once did. Yeah, well, if you if you look at the increased transmission with, with the Delta, you wonder, is it really more transmissible or is it just people's behaviour changing? Because the second reason there might be loads of more cases could be because people aren't observing the guidelines. Mm-hmm. And there's an element of that. So that there's, um, there's been a decrease in maintaining social distancing, basically. So 68% are observing it now, where it was 74% a few weeks ago. That's a reasonable drop, you know, and it's been dropping over time. I guess people feel they want to be free again, don't they? And they're mixing yeah. more and more, I suppose. So it's somewhat understandable. But still, it's happening. There's, a, there's less social distancing happening in the UK at the moment and that would allow any variant to spread, you see, not just this new Delta variant. Mm. So, so it's because perhaps this extra trans- transmissibility of the Delta variant could be because more people are, are more in each other's faces than they were a few weeks back. Yeah, that's a, a double whammy. I think it is innately more transmissible. We think now, based on how it's changed, it's more sticky to your lungs. The, they measure that, you know. It is more sticky for definite. And then you combine that with a decrease in social distancing, and then you begin to see it really spread. And that could be why it's got up to nine. Imagine that it's now ninety percent of the cases in the UK are now Delta. It's swamping the country and overtaking the previous variant. You see, so and it's probably a combination of both. But the main reason probably is it's changed itself to make it more transmissible anyway. Now, we want to talk about face masks in the United States. You know, that, a mask became a, a political slogan as well as everything else. 
Yeah, there's a great study actually, Pat. The look, the psychologists love this kind of thing. But people who wear masks and those who don't, what makes them different? You see, so this is, which is an intriguing sort of question, isn't it? And some, some don't wear masks for all kinds of reasons. But they've looked at cooperativity between people, and it's a very interesting one. So if you don't wear a mask, you're more likely to be cooperative with someone else who doesn't wear a mask than someone who does. There are ways of testing this. It's a bit experimental, of course. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be careful. But uh, but basically, it's like you're in a tribe almost. You're the, you're the mask wearing tribe and the non-mask wearing tribe and if you're in your own tribe you're, more, you're going to cooperate more readily with them and it got more complicated I think they got people wearing masks with someone not wearing a mask in front of someone else who wasn't wearing a mask if you see what I mean and even then they wouldn't cooperate because they felt they were being overwhelmed by the two non-mask wearers if you know what I mean so it, it, may, it solidifies your position in a way if you're a non-mask wearer with two mask wearers you know so it does seem to be something deep-seated you know the people say I'm not wearing a mask and that's just the way it is and I'll cooperate with my fellow non-mask wearers, whereas the mask wearers, which they studied, were more inclined to cooperate with other mask wearers. So it's becoming kind of a a distinction between different groups of people, I guess, is the way to think of it. Now, the cruising industry, absolutely decimated by uh, COVID-19, but it's embarking again on uh, its voyages. Well, this is the fascination, Pat, because because no more than other parts of the travel industry and hospitality and all sorts, the, the, the halting of the cruise industry had a massive economic effect and jobs lost and all, all those cruise ships stuck in port. You know, they're trying to get it back now, of course. And, and as you may remember, there are at least 100 big outbreaks on cruise ships. At least 3,000 people got infected on some of these cruise ships and there were deaths and everything. So it's been a big one to focus on for obvious reasons but it is starting up again and um, uh, there was a big cruise last week and everybody had to be vaccinated who was on board and that seemed like a good idea but guess what even with that two people tested positive it was a Royal Caribbean cruise and that was a bit of a disappointment in other words how can you have everybody vaccinated and yet when they test them during the cruise two people turned out to be positive and then one in the Mediterranean again an effort to control it and again there were two positive cases so that's that's causing a little bit of a, a scare now you see as to what that would mean because obviously if there are positive cases on a cruise ship that may not be the best. The CDC in America has mandated that 95% of people on a cruise ship must be vaccinated but some of the states are kicking back against that fascinating fact. Florida have said they don't want vaccination to be mandatory and they've said they'll fine a cruise ship $5,000 if they insist on vaccination. Isn't that strange? But to deter the cruise ships from insisting on vaccination. So it's a very much kind of a battle going on at the moment and it's a bit like as we're discussing here with flights and so on and airlines and what have you you know the cruise industry is in the middle of this fight as to whether to use vac- make mandatory uh, vaccination mandatory or not um, you know testing of course is a big part of this as well but the antigen testing is being used as well and they're really working hard by the way to try and bring the cruise industry back by the way so it's a, it's a really interesting one to watch yeah, I, I was interested in the trials that they did with the concert uh, in Ivy Gardens and then they had the, the Leinster match no antigen testing at all for these uh, experiments. And I'm wondering, what do they hope to learn if they don't know who might have been positive there or what can you learn if there's no testing? Because then, like, some of the people who are at the concert turn up positive in a few weeks' time. Sure, we don't know where they got it. We don't know whether... Do you know what I mean? It seemed to me a nonsensical exercise. Well, it wasn't scientific, Palestine. If you you do a trial... 
you do science, don't you? <laughs> you measure yes, things. Absolutely. You measure things carefully. And you use interventions in experiments. In my lab, we're always designing experiments, testing things, having a hypothesis and so on. Absolutely, I should have used antigen testing. There was a missed opportunity. It made it a waste of time in many ways, didn't it, really, in a sense. They could have got so much more information from that if they'd done some antigen testing as part of it. So why they didn't do it is a strange one. Maybe, maybe they were building up to the next one when they will do it, I hope. you know. But again, it was a missed opportunity. Yeah, um, there are a number of stories about diabetes, but I think we might hold those over to Thursday, if you don't mind, because uh, there's more uh, first time diagnosis of type one. And there there is a suggestion it might be triggered by uh, the, the virus, as type one can be triggered by a virus, any virus, uh, maybe. But anyway, we'll talk yeah. about that because we've got questions coming in. And this is a very interesting one. As a 60-year-old who got one shot of AZ, it seems I should have waited, after all, for the Johnson & Johnson this week, which is one shot. The government rounded on us, banned doctors' offices from giving us any vaccine, then insulted us further by preventing us getting the Johnson & Johnson now. We won't forget. But another one says, I got one shot of AZ. Uh, Why don't I just go to the pharmacy and get a a Johnson & Johnson one? Well, exactly, Pat. <laughs> That's a really good question. I think they've really been hard done by. Them. We've said this several times, haven't we? Now, this stage, you know, so that there's no reason not to take Johnson and Johnson after AstraZeneca. There's no immunological reason not to do that. You see, now they may worry about litigation partly because there were no trials combining those. You see, but what we know is it's more than likely going to be a safe thing to do, and could be even more efficacious. Actually, as we said before, if you if you switch vaccines for the second shot, there's evidence you get a fourfold stronger response, amazingly, with antibodies, for instance. You know. So again, there's no immunological reason not to do that, you see. So so maybe they should allow that. And as we've said before, Pat, I think nine countries now are allowing that kind of thing, you know, where you're given one vaccine as your first shot and you can switch to a second one. The Canadian agency, the NIAC equivalent in Canada, Pat, by the way, have said very clearly, you can take an RNA vaccine after AstraZeneca if you wish, you know. So why can't we mm. be like Canada? There's a simple question. They're a very, a very competent country with great immunologists and a great advisory committee, you know. I would follow Canada on this. Um, There's a very interesting prospect for your lab now. This is one of our listeners. Now that Delta is the dominant strain in the UK, would a lab-modified virus be the panacea to rid the world of COVID-19, i.e. a virus that becomes the dominant strain without actually making you sick? That's not a bad idea, but yeah, exactly. That's not a, that's a good question to ask. But of course, tampering with viruses can be tricky, you see. Of course. And a vaccine is kind of like that, remember. But but you're right, though. In fact, remember with uh, with malaria, they're trying to get the parasite into a state that's, you know, infertile to dominate, you know, and then malaria goes away. So it's not a bad, it's not a bad idea. Uh, I live in Spain. I got my Pfizer vaccine last Thursday. I'll be getting my second in three weeks. Is this shorter timeline between vaccines safe or is this a supply situation for different countries? No, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, again, they, they pick the gap. You know, it's, it's semi-arbitrary. If the tr- you got, you got to leave it a few weeks, basically, to make sure that the system is set up to take the second shot, you know. But the three weeks should be fine. Uh, can Luke advise about people who travel to Belfast or Northern Ireland for nights out, indoor drinking over the last weekends? Should these people self-isolate on their return? Oh, that's a tricky one, Pat, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't well, it? well, again, you've got the issue with the border, haven't you, in the north and all those kinds of things. <coughs> if it was the, in the event of the UK, you'd have to do that, wouldn't you? You'd have to come back in quarantine for five days, you see, if you went drinking in Wales, say, right? Yeah. <laughs> so why the rules should be different for Wales and Northern Ireland is certainly an interesting question, isn't yeah. it? 
Well, you can literally walk across uh, the border to a bar, you see, and then walk yeah. home, stagger yeah. home. Uh, that's the. Um, can you ask, Luke, how risky it is for me to go to an outdoor gathering for a few hours? I'm pregnant and I have relatives flying in from the UK for a few days to attend. I don't want to let the family down, but I am worried. Well, well, the rules are those relatives have to have to go into a five-day quarantine, don't they, and have an ant- and have a test. You see, so just to be on the safe side, so you got to be cautious. Sadly, with people coming in from the UK, they have to follow those guidelines because they remember it's different over there. The Delta variant's more dominant for a start. That's our concern. That there's a risk of those people bringing Delta into the country. You see, mm. and then if that person with Delta could infect an older person who's had one shot of AstraZeneca, remember, there's a risk of them infecting them now. So we do need to be cautious. Sadly, with, with UK arrivals really. Another very interesting one. Can you ask Professor Luke O'Neill, my son in the UAE has had two jabs of Sinopharm and he's now got one jab of Pfizer. Should he get a second Pfizer to get into Ireland? That's from Claire. I would, I would say no, because if you, and in fact, that what well, the good news there, Pat, was because I was being asked that a lot. There's loads of teachers in the UAE, and I was getting lots of emails off them mm. saying, should they take Pfizer after a sign of pharma? And then eventually, the UAE said yes, it was safe to do that. There's an example, Pat, of a government allowing mixing and matching. You see, and that's good to see. You know, now, now whether whether you, the, the regulations probably say you need a second shot of Pfizer, sadly, even though you probably don't, because I bet those two work really well together. You know, but at the moment, I think as far as I'm aware, the regulations still say you must have a complete vaccination protocol with, and they don't recognise Sinopharm yet you see in the in the European Union so so my suspicion is they'll have to, they'll have, to have the second shot of Pfizer which is a yeah. safe thing to do but in fact they'll be totally bulletproof they'll have, a, they'll have a three shots you know so they'll be, have a very strong yeah. immune response Which was the Chinese virus, vaccine though that wasn't regarded as being that effective? That, well, that was Sinopharm yeah, yeah and now when they say not effective it was 50% with the numbers in the trial but still it breaks that transmission or breaks that um, chain from, from um, infection into severe disease which is great, you know, so still seen as a very effective vaccine. Uh, This is a question really for a doctor, but I'll throw it out. I had COVID in October and my heart rate is still going high at times for absolutely no reason. Could my heart be permanently damaged? Well, that's, that's kind of long COVID, that's long perhaps. COVID. Yeah, I'd, I'd go and talk to a GP because, as we know, there's a percent of people, sadly, have these persistent symptoms. And that's, the, that's one of them, you know, and fatigue and difficulty breathing or other ones. So if you have that, I'd definitely go and talk to your GP and just see what guidance you can get on it. And they might, and they might be able to help you. Yeah, lots of people complimenting on uh, the article in the paper about, you know, mixing and matching the, the vaccines. And really, that's the message to Paul Reed and Tony Holohan and NIAC and the HSE and all that is get with the programme yeah. and allow herog- what is it, herologous? Heterologous, yeah. That's, that's, that's got to be our, our, our buzz, buzzword for the week, Pat, heterologous, heterologous vaccination, which is mysteries different. It's a fancy scientific word as used to confuse people. You know? But it's so important because of Delta. That's the reason to change now, you know. Whatever other reason there might have been in the past and there was lots of reasons in the past by the way the fact that the Delta variant only really you're only really protected with two shots that absolutely means the over 60s must be getting a second shot as soon as is physically possible really Okay, Luke, thank you very much for joining us. And we will talk about those diabetes stories and COVID uh, on Thursday's programme. Luke O'Neill, Professor of Biochemistry at Trinity College in Dublin. Uh, Thank you very much. 